Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. This is episode one. For photos, videos, and more information, visit dakotaspotlight.com. This story will be told over seven podcast episodes, each about 40 minutes in length. And as a courtesy, a handful of names have been changed. Much like a book, I'm telling this story in chapters, 31 in all. Uh, Want to just tell us who you are? I'm Haley Wald. I am the great-granddaughter of Wade and Ellen Zick. And I'm Megan Wald, and I'm the, also the great-granddaughter of Wade and Ellen Zick. So where are we? In Zeeland, North Dakota. It's our first time here. Yeah. It's kind of neat being here, mm-hmm. knowing everything that has happened in our family. Kind of cool being back. Yeah. Listening to Dakota Spotlight Season 2, Zealand, the untold story of Wade and Ellen Zick, their lives and their tragic murders in 1976. My name is James Wolner. Chapter 1. A Deed Without a Name In mid-July, along the state border between North Dakota and South Dakota, the sun rises at around 6 a.m. When it does, darkness is replaced with spectacular views of golden and green, wide-open landscapes. The mostly flat horizon reveals church steeples and farmsteads, hay bales, and the occasional fawn, buck, or doe. And there are towns, too, such as Zeeland, North Dakota, which sits just three miles from the South Dakota border. When it comes to the weather, a sunrise and its darker alter ego, the sunset, are about all a farmer can absolutely depend on here. Aside from those two givens, each morning in the Dakotas is just another day armed with potential barometric threats. Well over a century ago, European settlers here learned quickly that they must keep a close watch on the heavens and to always expect the unexpected. To this day, farmers constantly hold one eye on weather reports and the other on their crops, their grain bins, and the sky. During the summer months, it's always just a matter of time before sharp hail or rain or perhaps a tornado will roll into town. And the winters, the winters bring blinding blizzards and penetrating lethal winds. But really, at least back in 1976, it was only the weather gods that were considered to be unstable. Aside from that, life was predictable in Zealand. Not only predictable, it was for the most part non-threatening, friendly, quiet, and safe. On July 11, 1976, about two hours before the sun rose, 
Most of the 300 inhabitants of Zealand lay asleep in their beds. For them, the last thing on their dreamy minds was that this Sunday would be different from any other. Not everyone slept, of course. The July heat kept some people awake in their beds. For those who gave up on sleep, there were few distractions to be found on TV. My mother-in-law said traveling was bad for you. She said it addles a brain. You must have traveled a lot when she was young. One option was a movie called The Buster Keaton Story, which started at 3 a.m. on station KFYR. It's easy to imagine at least one or two of Zealand's insomniacs plopped down in front of the television with a glass of milk as a flicker of black and white dances around their living room. What's the matter? Mr. Keaton's in jail. So drunk he didn't know who he was. I'll send someone down to bail him out. One thing is for certain about that night. While the Buster Keaton story aired, at least six people were awake in Zealand. One person was Bernice Levi. Northeast of town, Bernice had spent much of the night tossing and turning in her downstairs bedroom. All of the windows were open in the farmhouse that night, an attempt to cool down the home before the July heat would return with the morning sun. Not far away, a 1968 four-door Chevrolet traveled slowly under moonlight and made its way along a section line between rows of crops. In that car were five people. Two of the passengers, a man named Wade Zick and his wife Ellen, were elderly in their mid-sixties, and the other three, one driver and two passengers, were young men aged 18, 18, and 21. The car came to a stop next to an oblong pit full of rusted car fenders, discarded washing machines, and other junk. A few trees drew defiantly amongst the dead debris. Perhaps Shakespeare would have described the place as a sunken cauldron, littered with the boiled-down remnants of an extinct civilization. The driver killed the engine, and the hum of the blue and white vehicle was replaced briefly with the pre-dawn silence of the North Dakota prairie. All five exited the car. Holding a shotgun, one of the young men led the elderly couple into the pit and then ordered them to sit down on the ground against a tree trunk. Wade and Ellen Zick, who were dressed only in their pajamas, did just as they were told. Then, the man with the shotgun turned and looked up towards his companions, who were standing next to the car. Beyond their silhouettes, he could see the twinkle of daylight attempting to interrupt this moment of darkness. It was that odd, almost nonsensical hour of the day, when it's no longer nighttime, and yet, somehow, it's not daytime either. A dim and disturbed moment where one might imagine the three witches working when Macbeth enters and asks, How now, what is it you do? And the three witches answer in unison, A deed without a name. Some call this hour of twilight a type of no man's land, both day and night. Others might argue that it is neither of those things. Perhaps it's a moment of nothing. For those five people, however, it was not to be in any way a moment of nothing. For them, for all five of them, it was to be their moment of absolute everything. This everything took less than ten minutes. During this minuscule sliver of human history, decisions were made and actions were taken that, once committed, would change everything for scores and scores of people. The man with the shotgun called out to his two companions. He said, Hey, bring down the rope. Bernice Levi had just fallen asleep again when she was suddenly startled awake. She was 48 years old at the time. When I met her in May of 2019, she was 92. 
Well, there was just a hill across, uh, you know, where our farm was. Well, it was uh, so warm and we had all the windows open. And uh, and I, uh, I heard a scream and uh, all of a sudden there was a shot. And I jumped out of bed and I went, I went upstairs to see if all the boys were at home. And uh, they were all sound asleep. And uh, then I went back down and went to bed. I never thought anything of it. Till later on, it, I thought, well, I heard that. Assuming she had just heard some kids playing with fireworks from the recent 4th of July celebrations, Bernice returned to bed. She hoped for a few more minutes of sleep before that predictable 6 a.m. sunrise. And sure enough, just like clockwork, like any other Sunday morning, the sun did rise that day. But unlike any morning before it, this sunrise would cast a different type of light across Zealand and the rest of North Dakota. This light was harsh and unflattering. And in fact, if you ask anyone who was there, they will tell you that ever since this dark source of light appeared, all of the shadows in Zealand, the shadows of the churches and homes, the shadows of the school, the water tower, the farmsteads, even the shadows of the people themselves, they have all changed. Their contours draw figures that look just a little bit quiet and sad. Some of them are lonely shadows, but just like this story, they are also very real and very true. I want to take a short moment to tell you how I intend to tell you this story. More importantly, I want to tell you why. The story of Wade and Ellen Zick has been fermenting in my mind for about four years. I came across it accidentally, and I soon learned that most other people, even locally in North Dakota, have never even heard of it. Those who have heard of it only have bits and pieces of it. It's a tragic story of a senseless crime in a very small town. You've heard of a win-win situation. Well, this event was a lose-lose-lose and lose. But I wondered, is there any sense to be found in a senseless crime? Is there an answer to why it happened? Most importantly, I felt the victims deserve to be remembered. And along the way, I've met some truly wonderful people, and I've learned a lot about a little town named Zealand. I'm grateful to have taken this journey, and I want to share with you everything I learned. I'm bringing you this story in two parts over seven episodes. In part one, episodes one through four, I invite you to follow along as I share a play-by-play of the event itself and the days that followed. And along the way, we'll learn a little bit about Wade and Ellen Zick. In part two, episodes five, six, and seven, we will dive much deeper. You will hear from law enforcement, family members of the victims, and from at least one of the convicted men himself. All an attempt to understand this tragic event and pay tribute to Wade and Ellen. So I guess if you're up for all that, let me be your guide and come along with me to rural North Dakota. Settle in for a story about life and death, love and loss, and as I discovered along the way, for some, it is also a story about finally finding an opportunity to say goodbye to someone they loved.
Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Chapter 2. Sunday Morning Sidewalks July 11, 1976, was a Sunday that many Americans welcomed. Across the nation, people meandered throughout the day in no real rush or direction. People were tired, after all. Exactly one week earlier, on July 4th, the nation had thrown itself one heck of a birthday party, and in many ways, the country was still nursing a bicentennial hangover. Americans had seen enough excitement for a while, seen enough confetti and firecrackers. Today would be a much-needed day of rest and recovery, a quiet day saturated in nothing but sweet normalcy. One person embracing a regular day off of work was Norb Sickler, who was going about his quiet business at his home in Dickinson, North Dakota. Like his colleagues at the Bureau of Criminal Investigation, or BCI, Norb could not have known that his trajectory that day would soon get punched off of its usual orbit. And in another town near Zealand, a place named Wishick, McIntosh County Sheriff Milton Wiest was enjoying the summer day, too. His son Glenn was home for the summer from college, and for Milton Wiest, everything seemed in its place in rural McIntosh County, North Dakota. At the western end of McIntosh County, in the town of Zealand, those who began that Sunday by turning on their television sets were offered an array of kids' programs and evangelistic and religious broadcasts. In every book of all the Bible, all six shows like Meet a Friend, Rex Humbard, Vegetable Soup, Treehouse Club, and Oral Roberts, and more. McIntosh County lies in South Central North Dakota, an area often referred to as Germans from Russia country. That's because the area was settled predominantly by Germans and a culture of people known as Germans from Russia. Nearly 120,000 people of German heritage left Russia for the U.S. between 1870 and 1920. A lot of them settled in the Dakotas. This area's most prominent celebrity is Lawrence Welk, the American musician, bandleader, and host of The Lawrence Welk Show. This native of Pennsylvania wrote songs of the South which have survived over 100 years. Lawrence Welk grew up just 30 miles from Zealand, and that accent, his way of speaking, that's his German heritage seeping through. And you can still hear and see that heritage to this day. Go to any small-town restaurant or diner in south-central North Dakota, and you will find traditional German dishes on the permanent menu. Um, well, of course, you have the cheese buttons down in this area, uh, the flesh kikla, um, the sauerkraut noodles, uh, pickling watermelon. Uh, I guess they pickled like a lot of stuff besides watermelon, green beans, almost everything they like to pickle. This is Brian Grove, the site coordinator for the Lawrence Welk Homestead Museum, located near the town of Strasburg, North Dakota. German-Russian Triangle, and it's a lot within the three counties here, uh, McIntosh, Logan, and Emmons County, uh, where they're very prevalent in that culture. Very proud. Um, and, and even just proud of their heritage a lot. 
they're very traditional they're very uh, proud of their foods and all their customs and their religion and and their home stories that they came from I guess uh, from living down here a lot of them would describe themselves as stubborn as they would say stuck in their ways um, but they're very proud of where they came from so that's why they don't want to forget even uh, Ludwig and Christina who was Lawrence's parents came here with nothing telling that whole homestead idea of coming here with a trunk and started from scratch and made a good business and a, and a good life for their kids. In 1976, as would be expected of a community proud of their religion and faith, Zeeland offered worshipers several churches to choose from within a 10-mile radius. There was St. John's Reformed Church, founded in 1909, and then there was Newcastle United, built in 1905. There was St. Andrew's Lutheran, St. John's Catholic Church, and then there was Zion Lutheran. The residents of Zeeland attended church like clockwork, but on Sunday, July 11, 1976, over at Zion Lutheran, things were not running as expected. It was the members of this church who first understood that this Sunday was to be a Sunday like no other in Zeeland. Two people were missing from the congregation that morning. And not just any two people, it was Wade and Ellen Zick. Wade, the bank manager in town, was the organist and choir director. His wife, Ellen, sang in the choir. But today, the Zicks did not show up to church. Someone who was in church that day was John Reedy. In 1976, John was a teenager enjoying the summer before starting his junior year at Zeeland High School. When I spoke with him in 2019, there was no mistaking that growing up in Zeeland in the 1970s was something he looked back on with both fondness and some wonder. Oh, as soon as you could hit the guy, hit, hit the clutch with a for the you know the tractor you were driving, we drove go karts, mini bikes, had tree forts, you know underground underground forts, you know sword fights with lats and nails and BB guns and sports with sports. John also remembers church service that morning. Yeah, we were we were at church, and and that's you know one of the biggest things that was going on is you know the Zicks weren't there, you know because he was you know the director of the choir, and usually they all, you know when someone left, they always told everybody where they were going, and and so it was kind of a a church service that wasn't really there that day. Everybody was just more concerned about where where the Zicks were. Cynthia Levi was there, too. I spoke with her inside Zion Lutheran Church. Wade and Ellen Zick were very close friends of my folks. Um, They got together for cards and outings and things like that. That's how I got to know them. And then as I grew, I became a member of his choir here in the church. And I asked Cynthia how Wade was as a choir director. Great. Fantastic. Um, never missed a Sunday. Never missed a Sunday. Uh, so dedicated. He had family in Bismarck and actually made some remarks, I'll never forget the remarks he would make about not being able to spend the weekend in Bismarck with his family because he had to be here to play the organ and direct the choir, which cut into his family life, but he was a very religious man. And Ellen Zick, what do you remember about her? 
She was just a fun-loving lady. Um, I <laughs> uh, loved to play cards. Uh, you know, they sat around the kitchen table, and the ladies would get together once a week, and they would have their coffee in the afternoon. Um, one of the ladies would do the baking for the week. They had a designated day, and they got together, and they, they played cards. She loved playing cards and that. So were you here in church that morning when they didn't show up? Yes. Um, in fact, um, we came to church and they didn't show up and we says, there's something wrong, you know, this, this is not a usual pattern. And we knew immediately that there was something not right, although we kind of chuckled and said, well, Wade always said he's going to teach this community how important he is. He's just not going to be there one of these days and, and see what the community has to say, you know. After this unusual church service at Zion Lutheran, the congregation went their separate ways, hoping and assuming all was well with Wade and Ellen Zick. They would be turning up in town at any time with a comical story about their very atypical absence from church that morning. Chapter 3. Unmade Beds In 1976, aside from church, Sundays in the summertime meant one other thing for many North Dakotans, baseball. Amateur baseball. But don't let the word amateur mislead you. Baseball was a big deal in North Dakota. In 1974, Zeeland almost won the state tournament, losing in 10 innings to a town named New Rockford. The proud Zeelanders point out, even to this day, that New Rockford had brought in better players from other towns, essentially cheating. Zeeland, perhaps with its German-from-Russia background, was too proud to do that. All of the 1974 squad were locals. And baseball is exactly what was on many people's agenda that Sunday. A game was scheduled for the afternoon at the baseball field behind the Zeeland School, and a large crowd of spectators turned up to watch it. Not everyone in town went to the game, though. One group of women got together to play cards and socialize instead. One of Zeeland's residents was Lorraine Reiner. She would occasionally play cards with the other women, but on this day, she didn't. She just couldn't let it go. Where were Wade and Ella Zick? The word mumbled around Zion Lutheran that morning had been that Wade and Ellen had driven the 95 miles to Bismarck the day before. They often did this to visit their daughter Nancy, their son-in-law Don, and their grandkids Mike and Robin. But they always came back, and they certainly never missed church. Finally, Lorraine Reiner could not take it anymore, and so she went over to Wade and Ellen's house over on 3rd Street. The first thing she noticed was that the screen door on the back side of the house was slightly ajar. She pulled it open and then wrapped her knuckles on the door. When nobody answered, she checked the doorknob and sure enough it was unlocked. But people didn't always lock their doors in Zeeland, so this alone was not alarming. She swung the door open and timidly called out, Ellen? Violet Reedy was at church that morning, and she was one of the women playing cards in the afternoon. When I spoke with her in 2019, she was 93 years old. The events of that day are burned into her memory. Wade and Ellen didn't come to church. We couldn't figure out why, why they don't come, because he never missed church. And so in the afternoon, 
some of us ladies, uh, we sometimes got together and played cards. Mm-hmm. And But Lorraine Reiner, she didn't. And then later in the afternoon, she went, finally went over to the house to check on them, to see what was going on, you know. She went to the house, she went upstairs and everything. Lorraine climbed the stairs slowly, calling out for Wade and Ellen. Once upstairs, Mrs. Reiner found their bedroom and pushed the door open. There was no sign of the Zix. However, she did make one alarming discovery. The Zix's bed was not made. Unsettled and a little scared, she hurried down the stairs, rushed home, and called Francis Streifel, Wade Zix's assistant at the McIntosh County Bank. Something was not right in Zeeland, North Dakota. Right now, you can see the pressure involved for the doubles championship. It's coming down to Wrestler and Caldwell. Johnson and Stinnett will have completed their play. Right there, that helps Caldwell a little bit. Johnson getting that Assistant bank manager Francis Streifel was 49 years old at the time. He and his wife Marie attended the Catholic Church, so he was yet unaware that Wade and Ellen had not shown up to Zion Lutheran that morning. It's not known what Francis was doing when he took Mrs. Reiner's call, but it is said that he was fond of woodworking, gardening, fishing, and bowling. And on that very day, starting at 1 p.m., KXMB-TV, Channel 12, out of Bismarck, televised the 1976 Bowling Doubles Championship. It's easy to imagine Francis sitting in his home watching this bowling tournament. It is especially easy for me to imagine it because I recently spent the night in that house. Today, the formal Strifle home is a lodge available to hunters and other overnight visitors to Zealand. Downstairs is a small kitchen, and next to it, a living room. If Francis was indeed sitting in that living room watching that bowling tournament, the following would be exactly what he was watching at 2.25 in the afternoon, just before he got a call from Lorraine Reiner. They've got the match one. Paul Caldwell and Don Johnson our national doubles champion. 25th PBA title for Don. And then perhaps Marie, his wife, answered the phone, listened for a moment, and said to her husband, Lorraine Reiner wants to talk to you. She seems upset. Something about Wade and Ellen? Francis rushed to the bank. Maybe Wade was there, he thought. Maybe he fell and he was injured. Certainly there was some explanation. He parked in front of the bank at the northern end of Main Avenue, and then he scooted up the front steps with his key in hand. As it turned out, he didn't need the key. The front door was closed, but he found it unlocked. He swung the door open and stepped inside. Wade, he called out. He checked the burglar alarm. It was switched off. He inspected the offices first and found nothing out of order. Behind the wooden counter in the back of the small building was a staircase to the basement. Francis went to the stairs, but then he noticed something immediately. The back door to the bank was ajar, at least four inches. He opened that door, too, and peeked outside into the area behind the bank, surveying and searching for anything, anything that might help this make sense. Certainly Mr. Streifel's heart rate must have picked up at this point. He turned on the light switch to the basement and then descended the stairs carefully.
he found nothing disturbed, nothing out of place. He then rushed upstairs again, and this time he unlocked the door to a walk-in vault. He pulled on the heavy door, took a step inside, and immediately noticed something unusual. Safety deposit box number 57 was partially open. Box number 57 was where the bank kept their so-called petty cash, or running daily money, for the bank. For Strifle, it was unthinkable that Wade would take or borrow the running cash, or leave doors unlocked and open. He knew then that foul play was the only logical explanation, even if his mind fought to accept it. Banks don't get robbed in Zeeland, North Dakota. This was absurd. In disbelief, Francis locked up the bank and drove to the Zix house. It took him about 60 seconds to arrive at their back door. He entered the house and called out for the Zix. No answer. No one. Finally, Francis walked out to the detached garage behind the house. Perhaps his heart sank a little when he discovered the Zix car was there, exactly where it should be. It was time to call the police. Chapter 4. Search Party At 3.20 in the afternoon, McIntosh County Sheriff Milton Wiest picked up his phone at his residence in the town of Wishick. A very agitated Francis Strifle told him what was going on over in Zeeland, some 35 miles to the west. The sheriff did not waste any time. He had his wife Mildred call Assistant Deputy Paul Ruid in the nearby town of Ashley to tell him to meet the sheriff over in Zeeland as soon as possible. As it turned out, they met up 15 miles outside of Zeeland instead. Perhaps on his drive down towards Zeeland, Sheriff Weiss got to thinking that this could possibly be a dangerous situation. Maybe he didn't want his deputy cruising into Zeeland by himself. They met up at the junction of Highway 11 and Highway 3, and then, a few minutes later, they pulled into Zeeland together at around 3.45 in the afternoon. When they arrived at the bank, there was no one there. So, this county sheriff started doing what he had to do. He improvised. He stopped the first person that drove by and asked him to go tell Francis Strifle to come to the bank at once. In a town where everyone knows everyone, this was the most efficient way of getting in touch with Strifle. And it worked. Within five minutes, Francis came tearing up the street in his car, and then the three men, Weist, Ruid, and Strifle, entered the Zeeland branch of the McIntosh County Bank. The assistant manager walked the men through the building, pointing out the open safety deposit box and the missing cash. He showed them how he found the back door ajar. Sheriff Weist, satisfied that foul play was involved, set things into motion quickly. The first thing he did was to seal off the bank and surrounding street. He did this in a manner that's hard to imagine happening today, with the help of anyone he could find. In fact, he got kids on bicycles to help him out. Then, the sheriff set about attempting to locate Wade and Ellen. The sheriff theorized that the Zicks were victims of a kidnapping and bank robbery. They were possibly tied up somewhere in the vicinity. He called the North Dakota Crime Bureau and asked for assistance in both the investigation and the search for the Zicks. He needed people on the ground and in the air. The sheriff knew, though, that it would take most of the BCI agents at least an hour, perhaps two or three hours, to get to the remote town of Zeeland and he wasn't about to just sit around and wait for him. Instead, he went to work getting assistance from the community to help search for the Zix. He sent Francis Strifle up to the baseball game behind the school 
to ask for volunteers. And before long, a dozen people showed up to help. Ray Wolf of Zealand was at the baseball game that day. 3.34 in the afternoon, we had a baseball game up at the park. And then the uh, assistant banker, Francis Dreifel, came up and told us about it and that they were looking for, they were doing a search around the area. So everybody was going and driving around to the farms and looking through buildings. John Reedy was one of those people. Once the day went on, we started to find out more and more. We were at a baseball game, I believe, and we came back and we stopped at the bank. And they, they, you know, said, okay, you guys go out and look through homes. And a lot of us that had motorcycles and stuff like that, we, we went out and searched around. Sheriff, we split these volunteers up into four groups. The idea was to start searching close to the bank and then pan out further and further in all four directions, checking every building or structure. Word spread quickly around town then, and baseball games and card games were suddenly deemed unimportant. Lorraine Reiner barged in on Violet Reedy and the other women playing cards. And then she came to Irene's where we were playing cards, and she said, you know, wait now, we're kidnapped. Well, we threw the cards away and everybody went home. Before long, it seemed like more than half the town was looking for Zeeland's banker and his bride. 250 driving miles away in Dickinson, North Dakota, Agent Norb Sickler got a phone call. At the other end of the line was BCI agent Dick Hildy. Hey, Norb, he said. Sheriff of McIntosh County has requested assistance. Looked like the bank was robbed and the banker and his wife might have been kidnapped. Get out there as quick as you can and take the lead. Four hundred miles away in Casper, Wyoming, the temperature had hit 97 degrees. And the one thing that Wyoming Highway Patrol Officer Number 115 didn't need was a bunch of action. The inside of an air-conditioned patrol car is where he hoped to spend his afternoon. But when he witnessed a blue and white 1968 Chevrolet doing 70 miles per hour in a 55 zone, he hit his lights and he pulled it over to the curb. The patrolman, a man named Bloomfield, ran the out-of-state plates through dispatch. They were North Dakota plates with the number 26-696. While he was waiting for dispatch to respond, Bloomfield watched as the driver of the Chevy got out of his car. He looked to be a young man in his early 20s. He had dark hair down to his shoulders. In addition to a blue baseball cap, a light-colored t-shirt, and faded blue jeans, the young driver also wore a pleasant smile. Through the back window of the Chevy, Bloomfield could also see two passengers. Dispatch responded to Bloomfield that there was nobody looking for ND26-696, no outstanding tickets or warrants, not a stolen vehicle. Patrolman Bloomfield pulled the door handle, and before stepping out of the chilled car into the stale heat, he thought to himself, well, let's see what North Dakota has sent us today. He approached the smiling kid and told him to fork over his driver's license. His name was David Feist, age 21. Bloomfield thought he caught a whiff of alcohol on the young man. Have you been drinking today? He asked David Feist. 
I had a beer or two a while ago. It's so darn hot and all. Where are you headed today, then? The patrolman asked him. To the coast. Okay, well, I'm going to have to give you a ticket for speeding, he said. You need to follow me back into Casper and pay a $20 bond at the sheriff's office before you leave the state. If you don't, I'm going to radio ahead and they'll pick you up. Do you understand? Yes, sir, the young man answered. I'll follow right behind you. Bloomfield handed David Feist a traffic ticket and both men headed back to Casper with the highway patrolman leading the way. Back in North Dakota, a lot of phones were ringing. Law enforcement officers were contacted in Minot, Bismarck, Grand Forks, and Jamestown. They were told to report to Zeeland, North Dakota, and assist Agent Sickler with a kidnapping and bank robbery. And in Bismarck, North Dakota, another phone rang at the home of Don and Nancy Wald. Nancy Wald was Nancy Zick, Wade and Ellen's daughter. She lived in Bismarck at the time with her husband Don Wald and their two children, six-year-old Robin and nine-year-old Mike. The Wald family had just seen Wade and Ellen the night before, when the Zicks had driven up from Zealand to visit. Now suddenly the Zicks seemed to be missing, and foul play possibly involved. As some, some interesting things transpired around the, those times. Um, this is Don Wald, Wade and Ellen's son-in-law. We were living in Bismarck at the time. They, they, um, they loved coming to Bismarck. In fact, we had uh, finally reached the point, and I have to admit, we, we did quite a bit of uh, coaxing and, um, to get them to move to Bismarck. And they were actually thinking about it, thinking about doing that sometime, really? retiring and moving to Bismarck. Anyway, they'd come up on weekends, and uh, this, was, uh, this time that they came up was a um, day trip. Instead of the weekend, they came up on Saturday morning and went home. It's kind of interesting in that that the kids, Rob and, Rob and Mike, were really fond of them. They, they really had a lot of fun with them. But that day, that, uh, when they left, we couldn't find them, Mike and Rob. They were playing at a friend's house or two different friends' houses and stuff. And they left without being able to say goodbye to the kids, which, uh, you know, that bothered me for years. I don't think the kids thought much of it, especially at the time. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, so it uh, eventful time when Grandma and Grandpa would leave, you know. And so, so. The family jumped in the car and headed down to Zealand, where, meanwhile, the search party had scoured every building and structure within the city limits. At that point, Sheriff Weiss told the search party to start looking outside of town, too. He directed several teenagers on motorcycles to search the main highway leading into town. He told them to check roadsides and tree lines. At this point, Weiss told people, leave no stone unturned. In Casper, Wyoming, inside the Natrona County Sheriff's Office, Deputy Bill Robinette was at the front desk. It had been an active day for Natrona County already. A 13-year-old boy had died in an auto accident early that morning, flung out of the bed of a pickup truck, and around noon, a liquor store had been held up by a man with a knife. Robinette was filing papers when a young man in a blue baseball cap entered the building and sashayed right up to the counter to pay a speeding ticket. Robinette studied the citation and the driver's license. Feist, the deputy said. That's an unusual name. I've never seen that one before. The young man smiled. Well, I'm from North Dakota. That's probably why. Then he handed Robinette one crisp $20 bill and added, 
Apparently, there was some other guy named David Feist, a guy who drowned to death. Sometimes people have confused me for that guy. That's happened to me a couple times. Robinette filled out the paperwork for bond number 7551, speeding 70 in a 55 zone. He pushed the logbook towards David Feist to gather his signature. So where are you headed? Picking up a ballpoint pen, the young Feist answered, To the coast. Which coast? the deputy asked. David Feist signed the slip, pushed it back across the counter and said, Have a good rest of your day, officer. Then he turned and walked out the front door. If Deputy Robinette watched as David Feist walked away from him that hot afternoon, he probably assumed he would never hear of him again. If he felt that there was anything unusual about the young man at all, it was probably only his uncommon last name. That, and of course the peculiar detail that young David Feist was occasionally mistaken for a drowning victim. Permission to use the songs North Dakota, Mile Marker, Cold Black River, and others granted generously by Peter Hicks, performed by Sleepy Driver. Check out and support Sleepy Driver's music on Spotify or at sleepydriver.bandcamp.com where you can purchase a special Dakota Spotlight Season 2 digital collection with the music from this season. See the link in the show notes or at dakotaspotlight.com. Thank you, Peter Hicks and Sleepy Driver. To God Be the Glory, sung by the Sunday School children at St. Peter's Church, Chafee, North Dakota, three miles from Wadezik's childhood home. To see photographs, videos, and other premium content, and to support this project all at the same time, please visit dakotaspotlight.com. My email is dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. I'm always looking for the next story. Do you know what that story should be? Thank you so much for listening and for coming along with me to North Dakota. And I'm bound for North Dakota To where they got more sky than ground Cause I'm tired of California And that dirty little town Yeah, I'm bound for North Dakota To where silence is the sound And I wanna take you with me Cause I like your kind around I'm sleeping in my car With the radio on and the windows down And I'm up before the dawn Before this heartache gets the best of me I'm gone and moving on From that city of the lost Over divided
Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.